This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large. This week, I am welcoming Matan Schechter, and he is someone who has spoken and written about something called the Messianic Movement. And this is, on a surface level or on a on a way it's presented or PR level, this is a group that is um, about or related to Judaism and Christianity. It's kind of this mix or hybrid or, or weird sort of thing. And it presents itself as one thing, but in fact is a bit darker, a bit more abusive, maybe a bit more manipulative, um, just past the surface level. So Matan, welcome to my show. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. And thank you for reaching out to me because before you had sent me an email about this, I had never heard of the Messianic Movement. And it does not surprise me. Yeah, not something <laughs> that was on my radar at all. Um, but you made a parallel with my um, interview years ago with uh, Christiana Minor and the IBLP, the Institute of Basic Life Principles, uh, the, the Gothard-Duggar group, which is a fairly strict, uh, harsh, abusive uh, sort of denomination of Christianity that, that a guy named Bill Gothard sort of invented or rolled up on his own and engaged in a lot of homeschooling and a lot of seminars and a lot of money uh, through the 70s and 80s and ended up, turns out, he was abusing young girls. And, uh, and while that was never really resolved successfully in court, um, that organization was exposed and Christiana grew up in that and I did this interview with her and that was really quite something because again, it looked like this nice Christian ministry on the outside where everything was great and we were all going to follow Jesus's laws and on the inside actually it was pretty pretty horrible. What is the messianic movement and and how did you come to reach out to me about it? So I came to reach out to you, uh, like you said, because of your video interviews with Christiana Minor. Um, I have watched those easily dozens of times, even though they are hours long, um, because they just spoke so much to my experience in a way that almost nothing I had ever seen had. Um, where uh, the Messianic movement, like Bill Gothard's IBLP, um, is an evangelical Christian group um, that emerged from the 70s and 80s um, that I would say you can't necessarily say that the Messianic movement is a cult, first of all, because it's not a single group or organization. It's many different groups and organizations, uh. many individuals. Um, so you can't say you can't properly say that it's a cult in the way that people use cult to mean, you know, a damaging high control religious group or non-religious group. Um, but it is, I would say, a harmful culture. And you have the exact same problems as in other types of evangelical Christianity. It's essentially a type of evangelical Christianity, if you will. Um, mm. You have that same problem that Christiana was talking about where um, people's theology and definitely biblical literalism combine with like an authoritarian culture and you end up with a very very oppressive high controlling group that presents itself one way they have you know a narrative that they present to the public and then inside the group um things can be very different <laughs> yeah exactly um, you um when we 
did the, the work with Christiana, one of the mm-hmm. things that I said about that group that was, I don't want to say unique because there's actually a ton of groups like this. Yeah. Uh, but it's the first one I've covered like it is it's a roll your own cult yeah. kind of setup, right? Because Gothard, um, uh, you set this whole thing up, but it was a homeschooling program is how it was propagated. It wasn't a centralized ministry where people were coming every week to get their, you know, fresh injection of, of, of uh, sacred principles from, from Gothard. It was, here mm-hmm. are all these workbooks. Here's all this information. The father of the family unit is the head of household. He's the one who's anointed by Jesus and God to protect the family from the darts of Satan and all that, and they're under mm-hmm. his umbrella of protection. So it really sets the father up as the kind of authoritarian figure of the household, and his word is law, and everybody must follow it, and there's no exceptions. And And the wife is submissive. These are That's the actual word that's used. They are submissive to the will of the husband. So you get, again, this front of this nice Christian values, everything's wonderful, but you start going into it and you find it gets dark pretty fast. And the homeschooling aspect of it is how it propagates through the children so that this will propagate through time. Mm-hmm. Um, is the, You presented this as some, somewhat similar to that, and I get from what you're saying there. I Everything that you just said um, speaks so much to my experience. Um, Uh, Although I did grow up in a home without a father for many years, my parents separated and then divorced. Um, But exactly what you're talking about, uh, biblical literalism and attitudes on authority that make the congregation and and Jesus the covering over you, and then the the husband is the covering over his wife and over his children and that kind of um, authority structure being taken very literally from the Bible and applied creates this environment where like little micro cults pop up and it can be a family group. It can be an individual congregation. Um, And again, I I don't really love the word cult, although I do use as a person who survived all of this and is very traumatized. I sometimes use it to describe my experience, but, uh, you, you once said in an interview with uh, telltale, I think that, your personal definition of a cult is any relationship. It can be one-on-one or it can be one-on-many where there's an abusive power imbalance. Basically, and, that's what it comes down to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And exactly that happens um, because of, of that biblical authority problem and, and other problems in the movement where um, fathers can, can be overbearing and, and have an unhealthy level of control over their children and wives and where congregational leaders have an unhealthy uh, power imbalance with their congregations. Right. Now, how does that work exactly? Because one of the things about, if I was going to um, elaborate on that very reductionist idea of what mm. a what an abusive relationship or, you know, the basis of a destructive cult is, of course, right. this abusive relationship. I would elaborate on that further now by saying that there are structures put in place around that relationship by the cult leader, head of household, you know, narcissist, whatever, that constrict the, that isolate and constrict the movements or freedoms of the people who are involved in the relationship, right? How did that manifest for you 
with this? Like, how did you get involved in this? Is it, were you born into this? Was this something that, like, like tell me your story here. Hmm. Um, so you kind of asked two different questions, which are how, how are people <laughs> abused and controlled in this movement and how did I come to be in it? Well, let's um, go so... ahead. Let's go with you first. Cause I wasn't, sure. I, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to go to the abusive part quite yeah, yet. No I was problem. trying to clarify the structure of it, but how did you get involved in this in the first place? Hmm. So the, that would be the story of my family <laughs> and th- my mother essentially uh, believes that one part of her family has Jewish heritage. My mom has also um, not had the easiest life, been a trauma survivor. And when she was in college in the late 70s and early 80s, she encountered the Jesus movement. I don't know if you're familiar with the Jesus movement, um, but they, they're kind of, the Jesus movement was a pushback to the spiritual upheaval of the 1960s and it's kind of a return to biblical literalism evangelical values political conservatism um you saw the beginning of like contemporary christian music at that time so it's sort Um, of fundamentalism 2.0 yeah Yeah, basically yeah Um, because that's exactly what happened revivals of the 20th century there we go yeah. So the Messianic movement very much grew up out of that movement, the Jesus movement. And so my mom has been uh, in somehow connected to the Messianic movement and the Hebrew roots Christians since she was in college. And when she had children, she wanted to raise us in touch with her Jewish heritage that she felt cut off from, but still spiritually Christian and spiritually evangelical because um, evangelicals are very, uh, our theology is the only way, there are no exceptions. You know, evangelicals typically don't even view other Christians as legitimate Christians. They question, you know, the salvation of people like Catholics. Um, So raising us interfaith or in a Jewish setting was not an option for her. So I was actually born when my family was attending an evangelical congregation, or or sorry, a messianic congregation, a messianic synagogue, as they would prefer you to call them. And we went there until I was about three years old. Um, There was a, (laughs) there was some conflict between my father and the leader of the congregation. And so we left until my parents divorced. And then we ended up back in a different messianic congregation in my preteen years and all the way through my teenage years. I grew up in uh, two Messianic congregations that were sister congregations, one in Virginia, one in Maryland, and uh, very similar, a lot of crossover. And and that's where most of my formative years were spent from when I was about, you know, 10, 12 till 21. Okay, got it. And these, you know, we all know that there are strict religious groups out there. There Mm -hmm. are groups that are like, look, you know, we're going to give you the path to salvation, but you're going to have to follow some rules. And in fact, that's almost the, (laughs) that's almost the motto of, of organized religion right there. Uh, We're going to give you the path to salvation, but you got to follow some rules. What rules did they have for you growing up and how did you react to them? Mm. So this is where you get into like kind of the harmful culture. Mm. Uh, some of the culture of the Messianic movement, most of it, I would say, is is the same as other evangelical Christian groups. 
And in that respect, uh, you were not allowed to consume popular media. We did not have TV in the house. Um, we had computers and the internet, but the entire internet was on a proxy server actually, where my, my parents would unblock one website at a time. Um, so I did not have access to just go on Google and search for something, it would not come up. It had to be specifically unblocked for me to access it. Wow. So what media and what information and popular culture I was able to access was very limited. Um, we were allowed to read and watch some, some secular media, uh, but very controlled and limited. We were not allowed to have non-believing friends, not believers, um, for the context of evangelicals and messianics. Believers or someone who is a believer is a, a born-again Christian or a messianic who accepts Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Uh, messianics tend to be very resistant to actually being called Christians, although they technically are. They don't like the Greek etymology of the word Christian itself. Um, for reasons we'll get into later. So they tend to use the word believer. So I wasn't allowed to have any friends who weren't believers. Um, I was homeschooled. I was homeschooled until I was in middle school. After one very unsuccessful year in public school, I then went to a private evangelical Christian school. Um, so just your contact with people around you. Like I, I did not know anyone who believed different from me until I was probably 21 years old. I didn't have any kind of queer role models or any type of queer media or representation until I was 21 years old or older. Um, just your social structure is so limited and the people that you spend time with is very limited. So that I think is what definitely one area of control. Yeah, um, sounds like it for sure. That's, uh, I mean, information control is part of the bite model, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. The bite, I only recently have discovered Stephen Hassan's bite model and it's been very illuminating to like kind of model my experiences against it. Uh, but yeah, the outside world, non-believers are all cursed. They're all, you know, getting sicknesses. They're beset by demons. They they lead unfulfilling, sad lives. There's no hope of being happy outside of um, outside the messianic movement or the evangelical movement, basically. Right. So that is one big area of control that messianics inherited straight from evangelicals. Huh. The other side, mm -hmm. I would say, is more from Judaism and has to do with conforming to Jewish practice. But messianics don't conform to Jewish practice in the same way or for the same reasons that what we would call like actual authentic Jews do. Um, they scorn other types of Judaism as being man-made religions. And they think that the proper way to, this is somewhat of a generalization because there's so much diversity in the Messianic movement, but overall, and certainly in the part that I grew up in, they think that the correct way to live is in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, and that you should conform your life to those standards specifically, which is somewhat not what modern Judaism does. There's actually a lot of, of other ways that Jewish people live, ways that the Torah is adapted. But Messianics believe in biblical adherence to the Torah. And so that means that although they don't follow all the kosher guidelines that other Jews do, they don't eat unkosher species of animal. Uh, so your diet is therefore 
controlled very much by peer pressure, I would say. Mm. Um, they don't worship on Sunday, they worship on Saturday, but they don't tend to observe Jewish rules around keeping Saturday a day free from work um, because those are later man-made rules, so they say. Um, so this kind of performative Jewish practice becomes necessary in the movement. It's how everyone lives their life, basically. And if you don't adhere to some standard of it, you're, you're going to be ostracized and not have any friends. Um, Let me stop I, you for a second, because yeah. I'm not, I'm not like real super familiar with all the restrictions <laughs> of the Jewish faith, right? Because I yeah. understand that they can be legion if you really get into it. Yes. Um, and of course, there's so many different denominations and all these other things, right? The thing that has my experience with with Judaism and 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 I am I am saying straight up right mm -hmm. at the get go I'm an idiot when it comes to Judaism I, I am this is okay. not something I I'm know a lot about right well I'm I I'm, I need you to be because I'm actually I'm actually going to ask you about this stuff because um, my understanding of Judaism it is it is a very take it or leave it chill kind of religion I mean not the Orthodox guys you know in Brooklyn but I'm mm. talking about your regular every Jewish person I've ever met from grade school forward has been some of the most chill calm non-aggressive non in your face type of people when it comes to religious belief and I you know, it struck me the other uh, a few weeks ago, I think, when I was talking to somebody else about this, that um, I don't know any ex-Jews. I, I know ex-Orthodox. Ex I know people who come out of that cult situation and are, you know, a little screwed up. But ex, but otherwise, mainstream Judaism, there's not, like, people going, and this, you know, and I was abused at the synagogue, and they yeah. did this, and they did that. So it tends to be, in my experience, you know, and I'm kind of niche, I have my world that I live in, and it's the world of abusive groups. Judaism doesn't tend to come up that often in this, in this world. But, yeah. but this group you're talking about is fascinating to me because it's not Judaism, it's a bunch of Christians pretending to be Jews. That is correct. Um, I've heard them described as Jewish LARPers. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh, That's there are what so it many things. Like. There are so many things you just said to that I want to respond to, and I'm going to try to hit some of the important ones really quickly. Yeah, please. Um, one, one is that obviously there is abuse that happens within Judaism because there's abuse that happens in all human. Well, well of course. Organizations, sure. um, but yeah, I certainly don't you don't see a movement of it like you see ex-evangelicals or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, or you don't see wide-scale scandals, I think. No, there's been no spotlight yeah. for synagogues. <laughs> That's a, maybe it's a thing, but, and, but we haven't seen evidence Well, certainly it. there's a thing. I've read some cases recently, actually, of, of Jewish schools that had abuse cases. But um, okay. I'm, So I'm not trying to say that it doesn't exist. Yep. Uh, just that it's not perhaps an institutional problem in the way it is in other groups. Nor a dogmatic problem. Their, yeah. their dogma also, doesn't dictate abusive behavior as such. I would say when you think of Orthodox and you immediately jump to Brooklyn, probably what you're thinking of are what are called Haredi Jews. There's a specific group probably you're thinking of also called Satmar Jews. Okay. And they are not 
that's not even what Orthodox is. They're a tiny subset of Orthodoxy. Oh. Um, there are Orthodox Jews all over the world, and there are also there are there are ordained female Orthodox rabbis. There are ordained queer and trans and gay Orthodox rabbis. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Orthodoxy is not synonymous with probably what you're thinking of, which are the oh. what we call ultra Orthodox or Haredi. Yes, that's the guys. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and even among those groups, I'm sure there are people who live meaningful religious lives and and are happy with their communities. Um, although, anyway, anyway. Um, <laughs> But the, the really salient thing that you said is that Jewish people tend to be very relaxed about belief. And that's mm -hmm. true. I would mm -hmm. say that Christianity is defined by belief. Uh, a Christian is literally someone who believes in Jesus that's as right. the Messiah and as God. That's Judaism right. is not defined by belief at all, really. Uh, there are certainly big beliefs in Judaism as a religious entity, but uh, you can be and in fact, many people are religious Jews who pray every day and, and follow Jewish law and lead religious lives and go to synagogue who are atheists. Um, so who are atheists, who are atheists. Yeah. Wow. Um, See, Cause I know that there are rabbis who are atheists and yep. that, oh, yeah. that, that was the thing that, that first blew me away about, I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> it's yeah. very much not the same thing as Christianity, but in our sloppy thinking, and, and again, I'm an idiot, so I, I've equated these things when, I, when I'm learning that I shouldn't. Well, Christianity is the biggest religion in the world, the most mm -hmm. hegemonic culture or institution in the world, and they happen to have borrowed uh, an enormous chunk of Jewish texts. Right. So people often think that they know what Judaism is all about because they have experience with Christianity and what's called the Old Testament. Um, and if that's your only source of information for Judaism, then uh, you probably know more misconceptions than you actually know about Judaism. Right, exactly. <laughs> you said you don't run into a lot of ex-Jews. Uh, it's not technically possible to be an ex-Jew <laughs> because um, you're either born Jewish or you convert to Judaism. Um, some people are born kind of Jewish and then also convert to Judaism. It gets complicated. Uh, but once you're in, you're in, and you can't really not be Jewish because being Jewish is a quality of belonging to the Jewish people, uh, the Jewish culture, ethnicity, tradition, like part of the family. Right. So you can't be an ex-Jew in that you can't really leave the family. But of course, you cannot practice or not believe in the tenets of Judaism. You cannot follow Jewish religious law. And technically, we call someone who is Jewish but doesn't practice Judaism um, and practices something else is called an apostate, someone who has left the religion, but they haven't left their identity of being Jewish. Right. Um, which now, gets complicated because then obviously there are people who are messianics who are technically Jewish. Um, and, mm -hmm. and the movement was founded certainly by some Christians who were ethnically Jewish, um, who were born Jews, raised as Jews and became Christians later in life and then decided that it should be their life's work to make other Jews into Christians as well. Uh, so there are actually Jewish people in the Messianic Jewish movement, but they are not practicing the Jewish religion and they are not, you know, believing in the Jewish religion. They are religiously Christian, even though some of them are ethnically Jews. Right. Now, some of them, I suppose, could be 
considered ex-Jews, I guess, in a way. But it, yeah, you, it, you know, I guess if you stretch um. it. <laughs> but I. But okay. But depends then, uh, but, who you ask. Uh, well, at the same time, though, you do have people who have left the ultra-orthodox groups. Yeah, you do, and and you have plenty of Jews who just live totally secular lives and have no. Um, their Jewish identity doesn't have meaning to them, and they just uh, live as Americans or whatever, you know, ethnicity, nationality is around them. Right. Um, so in a, in a sense, there are ex-Jews, but technically according to, to Jewish belief, we don't think that you can really leave. It's kind of a Hotel California situation. <laughs> right. I get that. I totally get that. Now, this is a, this is a, a very interesting group. The more I learn about this, the more you tell me about this, the more yeah. interested I become in it. Because you mentioned earlier that, that, you know, people in the Messianic movement, which is, if we're going to, if we were to sum, summate this or try to reductionist or simplify this, it's Christians trying to convert Jews to Christianity. Yep. Okay. Got it in one. Boom. There we um. go. So... <laughs> So that being said, though, they don't like to be called Christians. So there's a real identity crisis here. Yes. um, They think that the word Christian itself is one of many cultural barriers to converting Jews. And so they try to remove as many of those barriers as possible. Um, Evangelicals love when they find out you're Jewish or if I see an evangelical in the store sometimes and they see my necklace or my kippah or something. Uh, they love to tell you how much they love the Jewish people because Jesus was a Jew and they love Jesus. Um, that does not work on Jewish people. Most Jewish people do not like to hear that because if there's been any one man in whose name more Jewish people have been killed than anybody else, it's probably Jesus. Yeah. Um, yeah. The cross is a beloved symbol for many Christians of their their personal relationship with Jesus and of his sacrifice for them. For Jewish people, the cross is a symbol of oppression and persecution and genocide. Um, Christian language and symbols are culturally traumatizing to Jewish people. Sure. Or at least some Um, of them. To many Jewish people. Yeah. Um, But on the other hand, also many American Jews, for instance, say Jesus Christ as a casual swear word all the time. Right. (laughs) It's part of the language. That's right. Go ahead. No, I was just saying it's it's lost its, I mean, when, in that sense, it's actually lost its significance as a term that means anything other than a swear word. Yeah. So um, let, let me just come at you for a minute. The Messianic movement would like you to believe that what they, what they would like to, more than anything else for you and for everyone in the movement to believe that they are a continuation of the first century church in Jerusalem under the Apostle James, which was mostly Jewish people who were believing in Jesus as their Messiah. They mythologize the first century Jewish church which there's not even a ton of archaeological evidence for, first of all, um, in the first century. Uh, There's no textual evidence until you get into the second century at all. Um, And even then, why am I telling you? I'm sure you know this. Even then, it's only scraps. So they mythologize this idea of a Jewish first century church who believed in Jesus but maintained Jewish religious practices. And they claim that they are the modern descendants of that movement, which is frankly not true. Uh, (laughs) That movement was 
pretty well destroyed in the development of the early church in conflicts between Jewish revolutions and Roman power. Um, Christians and other Jewish rebels were very much not friends. Christians kind of sold Jewish revolutions out to the Romans and Jews consequently kicked them out of synagogues and said, you can't, you can't sit with us anymore. Um, and they claim that they're part of that tradition and they even mythologize it to the point of, you know, they have a list of rabbis through the ages who they claim were messianic rabbis, who in fact, many of them were just rabbis who were later converted to Christianity, but they did not live as messianic Jews, they just became Christian. Um, and they claim that there were all these messianic Yiddish speaking Jews in Europe before World War II that were destroyed in the Holocaust. They have, you know, mythologized their heritage right that's and then not, not that's, hard to do that's the first level they say that they're from the jerusalem church which is not true it's a myth the second level of how they kind of obscure what they really are and their origins is that they claim to date back to the 19th century late 19th century and the early 20th century because many messianic organizations that exist today were founded in the late 19th and early 20th century but that is also misleading because when those organizations were founded they had a different purpose um, so like there's a there's a large congregational organization called the Messianic Jewish Alliance of America, and they claim that they have been a Messianic organization since the early 20th century. I think they were founded in like 1918. But when they were founded, they were called the Hebrew Christian Alliance of America, and all that they were was a social club and congregationalist movement, kind of, not even really congregationalist, for ethnic Jews who were Christians in the same way that you might find like a Korean church or a, you know, a Salvadorian church. They're not saying that they're not Christians. They're just culturally and ethnically also belonging to this other group. Right. Or groups like Chosen People Ministries and Jews for Jesus, um, which are both evangelistic groups. They do a lot of outreach. They claim that they date back to the late 19th century. But at that time, they were called the American Board of Christian Missions to the Jews. They were very overt about being uh, Christian missionaries. Right. Proselytizing specifically yes. to Jews. Yes. And they yeah. the reason they proselytize to Jews is coming up. Uh, it's very important to them. Yeah, I was going to I, I, I wanted <laughs> to get to why. Why is this so important to these guys? Mm. It has to do with eschatology, which is uh, their their beliefs about the end times, the end of days. Um, so please elaborate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> has to do with the apocalypse. It's very topical. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you don't actually see those groups start to define themselves as messianic, to define themselves as Jewish groups. Um, and you don't see any Messianic congregations until the 70s. Mm. And the reason that their mission shifted at that time had to do with uh, geopolitical events. So basically in 1967, for the first time in about 2000 years, Jerusalem was under Jewish political control. 
whatever you think about that is <laughs> another story. But it happened, um, and it was a big global event that suddenly Jerusalem is in the hands of a Jewish government. And that happened as people were also looking towards the year 2000 coming, and they thought, you're familiar with young earth creationists, they think the earth is 6,000 years old. Many of them thought that the year 2000 was going to be the 6,000th year from creation, that it was going to be entering the seventh millennium of the universe, and that Jesus would come back in the year 2000. Well, Christian prophecy dictates that certain conditions are met before Jesus will come back. Um, and some of those conditions are that there, one of the conditions is that there has to be a temple. Jesus is going to come back to a world that has a literal Jewish temple. So they were very, very excited about the idea of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount being in Jewish control because they mistakenly thought that the Israeli government or some Jewish religious institution would rebuild a temple. And they, they saw Jerusalem being overthrown and claimed by Israel as a sign that Jesus's coming was near. One of the other really important, I guess two of the other really important conditions for Jesus to come back, Jesus himself literally said, I believe it's in the Gospel of Matthew, that he will not come back until all of Israel says, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, about Jesus. So basically, he won't come a second time until all of Israel accepts him as the Messiah. So Christians, therefore, have a huge vested interest in making Jews accept Jesus as the Messiah, because then Jesus will come back, and the world will be restored, and everything will be perfect for them. Um, and the other condition is that when the Messiah comes, all Jewish people, including the lost 10 tribes of the Northern Kingdom, will physically live in Israel. So that's part of where you get a huge evangelical support for the modern state of Israel. Mm. They think that, um, that Jews living in Israel is a condition that will bring Jesus back to earth sooner. And you see that theme of, um, wow. of, evangelical support for world events because of eschatology in lots of things like uh, evangelicals particularly don't like Iran. One of the reasons is that many of them believe Iran is a prophesied kingdom that will be a player in the, you know, the war of the end times. Um, so they and it, think it doesn't help a whole lot that Iran Assist like <laughs> that endeavor by being one of the most abusive, uh, harsh theocracies on the planet. But it's, uh, yeah. but I definitely get what you're talking about with the eschatology angle because this also this hits us in every aspect of life, including climate change. Mm -hmm. You know, in terms yeah. of trying to make something happen with that, and some of these guys secretly are like, "Yeah, no, that's God's will. That's uh, we're supposed to all die." Yep. So, yep. You know, it, it gets a little bit deflating, you know, uh, with yeah. that. Now, you just basically laid out, make, make sure I'm understanding this here. You basically said that the mission of the Messianic movement is to convert all the Jewish people on the planet to mm -hmm. Christianity so as to pave the way for Christ. This is one of the keystones of Christ coming back. Yep. And so we're talking here, I mean, some quick math is we're talking uh, 14 million Jews around the world. Yeah. So that's about the size. It's slightly less 
than the number of Mormons on the planet. <laughs> Just as a comparative, you'd have to, the task before this, these people, the, the task they have given themselves, is to convert millions of people. It's monumental, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as a, um, as a former Scientologist who was always playing the numbers about, you know, getting everybody into Scientology and clearing the planet, yeah, I can tell you that is a gigantic goal. That is years and decades and centuries yeah. of work ahead of them to, to do that. I, uh, out of curiosity, the other day, I was on a, an evangelical website that's a financial transparency organization that many evangelical organizations voluntarily partner with to reveal their annual budgets. And I looked up all the messianic organizations that I knew of um, and added all their budgets together for one year to see how much money these people are throwing at at. Jewish conversion efforts, basically, and it was like $150 million. So in the scheme of things, there are certainly bigger organizations and bigger industries, but we're not talking about nothing here. There, There is definitely a commitment. I think you said there's 14 million Jews in the world. I can tell you there's not that many Messianics. There's probably under 500,000. Well, that was going to be my next question is what's the what's the challenge here cuz with those kind of numbers they're 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 playing a Scientology game. Of, yeah. And they must I I I can't help but wonder right away what's the level of self-deception there? Are they right around the corner? Are they just about to make it happen or do mm. they understand that this is probably a couple hundred years worth of work to actually get it done? All evangelical groups, I think you will find the same answer to that question. And it's mm -hmm. that they all think that it's right around the corner. And right. the reason is that they tend to be biblical literalists. And the New Testament indicates that the second coming is right around the corner. Right. So and that idea. for 2,000 years. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, I have some interesting theories about that, by the way. Oh? <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I think that a lot of. A lot of Jesus's prophecy in the Gospels, certainly, um, and, and you could maybe even make some parallels for Revelation, are fulfilled by the Roman conquest of Israel under Vespasian and Titus. Um, mm. Notably, Jesus prophesied that the Galilean towns would be destroyed, that there would be a wall put up around Jerusalem, and that the temple would be taken apart stone by stone. Josephus records that all three of those things literally happened within 40 years of Jesus's death. Um, so I think an argument could be made that when the New Testament is talking about this triumphal figure who's going to return and unite all of Israel, that uh, there's an element of Roman thinking that has snuck in there. Certainly it wouldn't be a surprise because plenty of the rest of the New Testament is full of Roman, uh, Roman philosophy, Roman religious ideas. So I think that that's part of why you see such a conviction from the authors of the New Testament that the second coming was near because for them, in a way, it was. Um, that's right. It was supposed, I mean, there, there are many, many, many analogies and metaphors and, and, and comparisons and stuff made about this. Yeah. But, when you, but what you're saying just now aligns with a lot of what I have read and heard from doctorate level historians who have dived into that time period and read, you know, basically you can spend your life studying that and get a full grip on it. If you actually spend yeah. all those years, you'll get, you'll read everything there is to read that there is a finite amount there is. from that time <laughs> period, you know, 
And it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. I wish, I just wish the uh, biblical literalists would pay some attention because uh, they are way, way off. I mean, the, the, the elaborate translations or interpretations you have to make in order for this stuff to still make any degree of sense now is, is mind-blowing to me. I agree. And I think a really interesting thing to bring up here, perhaps also illuminating for your audience, uh, I talked about how because of biblical literalism, Christians believe that the Messiah won't come again until all Jews live in the land of Israel. Um, Jews have similar prophecies because we, we have the Tanakh, Christians copied it, they call it the Old Testament, uh, but we don't interpret them that way at all. Jews actually, religious Jews believe those who do believe in prophecy, that all Jews will not live gathered in the land of Israel again until the Messiah comes. So in fundamentalist religious groups among Christians, you see a huge support for the state of Israel because they think that by getting Jews into the state of Israel, it will bring Jesus back. But in very fundamentalist Jewish groups like the Haredim that we were talking about earlier, they don't support the state of Israel because they think there shouldn't be a state of Israel until the Messiah comes back. So you actually like these, these biblical literalists can end up sometimes at very different conclusions. My point, exactly yeah. <laughs> my point, right? Is the misinterpretation um, of this material. Yeah mistranslation of this material i mean that gets into mm. the whole bible argument which we could mm. go talk about i could talk about that for a long time so could i <laughs> oh yeah love that stuff but i want to get back to your experience because um yeah because yeah bigger, we're definitely off track <laughs> well we're not because i wanted to get the bigger picture here but i also and and contextualize it in a way mm. that you have i mean for example they're on an impossible mission unless they go and do away with all of these Jewish people who believe that, you know, there is no Israel until Jesus comes. I mean, they're going to have yeah. th these two things are mutually exclusive ideas. So um, so I think that speaks a little bit to the reality of, of, of what they're facing. But getting down to the getting back to the more practical day to day of this existence mm -hmm. in this group, you grew up in this group. You had some rather harsh experiences with it. And, oh, yeah. and those are the areas where I look at because belief is belief and belief is interesting and it's fun to ridicule and laugh at for sure. I definitely enjoy doing that yeah. from time to time without trying to – and I hope I don't come across as hypocritical when I say I'm not laughing at the people who believe this stuff. I think it's a little sad, but I'm not yeah. laughing at them or ridiculing them. I think it's just a silly belief set. But at the end of the day, who cares? It's, you know, the, 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 the point here is, is, our, is that belief informing or driving abusive behavior, behavior right? Is it, mm -hmm. is it, is it being used in, in a man, overtly manipulative fashion to harm people? And your experience seems to indicate that it is. And so I'd like to address that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I would say, first of all, and, and kind of on this point, uh, regarding the impossible mission, yeah. <laughs> Messianics know that that is a monumental task. And they are not, for the most part, they are not trying to convert 
you know, Satmars and Haredim and extremely Orthodox Jews. Messianics focus on trying to convert Jews who they consider to be uh, easier targets mm-hmm. for, not to put it too bluntly. Um, <laughs> no, but that's, yeah. Uh, there's there's a really great video that you can look up and, and I'll try to link it to you and you can put it in the description from Jews for Judaism. They had a, uh, his name is Larry Levy, I believe, and he is an ex-Messianic Jew who was involved in in the Jews for Jesus organization. And he he will talk about this from his own experience and I've also seen it. Messianics target young Jews um, particularly Israelis who are post-military service but pre-college. It's a pretty common thing for Israelis. They have a 100% draft, um, so all Israeli citizens have to serve in the military unless you have extenuating circumstances. Um, and and the, the very extreme religious Jews use their beliefs as an extenuating circumstance. They don't do military service, actually. But most Israelis are drafted they're paid for their time in the military. And then before they go to college, they take their military salary and they travel the world. It's, it's a thing. It's like a gap year. Uh, Messianics open centers and hire uh, professional missionaries and do training just to target those young Jewish people who are just post-military, which can be very traumatic, who are finding themselves away from their parents, away from their communities, traveling the world. Um, so, so they they literally. I know someone who moved across the world to open a campground for that specific purpose to missionize to Israelis. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's a great so, demographic to go after. Yeah, admittedly, yeah. I mean, it's it's actually crafty versus say, you know, the atheists who are constantly pursuing evangelicals and they have no yeah. hope of converting them or right, converting right. <laughs> them. Right. I mean, it's just ridiculous the fights they get into. But I this is a targeted. Yeah. This, this is an actual clever targeting demographic, you know. Going yeah, so that. that's that's a very good example and a very clear example of how they're targeting uh, Jews who they think are, are more at risk. Uh, they're picking off the weak in the flock, but, but also um, anyone who had religious trauma, anyone who... Uh, young college students who are moved away from their families and away from their Jewish communities. They're looking at people like those. They're opening ministries on college campuses. Um, Another thing you really see are people who did not really receive, they don't have a strong connection to Judaism, either religiously, culturally, however, um, their Jewish identity they don't feel confident in it. Maybe they're what's called patrilineal, um, which means that they have Jewish family, but they're not considered Jewish by the majority of Jews. Um, so they go after people who feel disenfranchised, people who were not brought up Jewish, who don't understand Judaism particularly well. Um, and I would say, my experience, most of the Jewish leaders in the Messianic movement, many of them grew up not very educated about their Judaism. And they will tell you themselves that, you know, even if they did go to Hebrew school, it didn't mean anything to them. They didn't pay attention. They didn't ever practice or go to synagogue after they turned 13. Um, so they, they're not going after Jews with very strong religious convictions. They're going after people who are traumatized, people who are isolated, people who um, lack a connection to Judaism and they're offering them a connection to Judaism. Right, right. Interesting. Only in that it's a it's a it's a smart 
recruitment strategy it's because it's, smart. it's going after all the low hanging fruit, yeah. you know, and especially targeting people who are, who are dis, um, what's the word disaffected with, yeah. with, with the Jewish faith, maybe for some reason, or with, um, as you mentioned, ex military. So, you know, there could be, um, instances of PTSD or trauma and they mm -hmm. will offer solutions to that. Right. Most Israelis also, to get back to the ex-military, Israel is not a particularly religious country. And I think among Jews in Israel, only like 5% consider themselves to be religious. And again, the religious Jews don't serve in the army <laughs> because they think that uh, it's morally wrong to do so for religious reasons and they get a pass because in Israel there's religion and government not quite so separated as we would like to see. Right. Um, hmm. So... So in, in that case, also, they're going after people who are Jewish, but do not have a connection to Jewish religion, necessarily. Okay. So why is this a problem? Mm, because, first of all, it's deceptive. Um, what they're doing is deceptive. If you, if you look up Messianic groups which are technically churches. They, they are there to preach from the Christian Bible, Christian beliefs and theology, 100%. That is what these groups are. Um, if you look them up and try to find Messianic groups near you, they will be called synagogues on you know Google Maps or whatever. Um, they will list themselves as synagogues. There was a case of a military chaplain in the US Army who was Messianic, who insisted on wearing the uh, mosaic tablets instead of the cross as his chaplain insignia and, and actually was then later not allowed to do that, fortunately. Uh, they call their pastors rabbis, which I particularly have a problem with because rabbi is an actual title that you get from another rabbi and it has an actual meaning. You, know, you can't just go to community college and say you have a PhD from Harvard. It's not what that means. Um, so they are using deceptive language and practices. They never say Jesus, ever. I can't believe we haven't mentioned that. They won't say the word Jesus. They say Yeshua. Yes, I see that right mm -hmm. here. Now, they, yeah. they do clarify that Yeshua refers to Jesus in parentheses, but otherwise, yeah, it's Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. Yeah, they, they do. Uh, <laughs> where are you? Where are you looking? I'm on the uh, Mess Messianic Jewish Alliance of America website. Why not? Um, yeah, some groups are very up. For, there are some groups actually that that try to be as covert as possible and will not expose the fact that they're messianic until they've made enough of emotional connection with someone that they think they can do a conversion. Mm. There's actually, there was a married couple a couple years ago who was like deep undercover in the Orthodox Jewish community trying to form relationships with people to target them for conversion. Um, yeah, they, they use all this deceptive language. They say Yeshua HaMashiach instead of Jesus Christ. They don't use crosses. They, they are trying to advertise themselves as Jewish in order to insert Christian theology into people. And basically it's supersessionism. They're trying to replace Judaism with the religion of Christianity and the problem and the abuses I would say all of that is deceptive. All of that is controlling and dishonest and appropriative. Often it's cultural appropriation. We have to acknowledge the fact that more than half of the people in the Messianic movement are not actually ethnically Jewish. They're Gentiles and they're appropriating Jewish practices um, and sometimes calling themselves Messianic Jews, which is 
not not acceptable. Uh, many of them have conspiracy theories that like all messianics are secretly descended from the 12 tribes or that all, you know, all white people are secretly Jewish. Wow. Gone into some crazy thinking. Oh yeah. Wow. But the problem is that they're trying to convert all Jews to this messianic Christianity, basically. Right. But that the theology that they're giving and, and the culture of their movement is, I, I would say, is harmful to people. It leads to authoritarian groups that, that hurt individuals. Um, they don't believe in women in leadership ever. No women in leadership. Um, at least not in authoritative roles. Women could be teachers. Women could be ministry leaders, like of a women's ministry. Mm -hmm. Women cannot be ordained. Women cannot run congregations. Right there is a big problem. Anytime you end up with a group of people where only one gender has the ability to be in control, the other gender and, and also other men are going to suffer from that in yeah. some instances. There's, you know, it's just going to happen. Yeah, zero um, question about that. And that also is in full alignment with everything we were talking about earlier with the Duggars and, and it's, oh yeah. it's, it's very standard. It's the same evangelical playbook. practice, I guess you could mm -hmm. say. To, well, Messianics you know. are evangelicals. They're, they're, mm -hmm. um, they are literally Baptists and Pentecostals who all decided that they would present as Jewish in order to convert Jews more effectively. But in, inside the culture of the movement, it's essentially Baptist culture and Pentecostal culture because that's that's really where these people came from. Right. Now, that doesn't mean that these guys, or does it mean that they get into um, some of the some of the other Pentecostal sort of stuff? It sure stuff? does. I mean, like, you <laughs> um, know, the, the speaking in tongues and all that. I, oh yeah, I've seen plenty of speaking in tongues. Uh, we had what we called uh, flag ladies, uh, tambourine ladies. Uh, there are people who are moved by the spirit. I have been personally exercised three times. I have had exorcisms performed on me. Really? Um, oh yeah. Why yeah. did you need demons derived out of you? Oh, it took me a long time to realize actually. Okay, so one of them was in the context of queer conversion therapy. Mm. Um, and two of them were, I did not expect. They just kind of happened randomly at events. One of them was at a, a an evening service uh, and one of them was at a home group fellowship and people just started putting their hands on me and praying and casting out demons. And it took me a long time to realize that that was almost certainly because of my sexuality, that that was almost certainly the demon that they were trying to exercise. Right. Um, yeah. Huh. And yeah. did they, did no, they... they do have all of that Pentecostal culture, speaking in tongues, the whole thing. Not wow. everyone does all of those practices and not everyone has the same beliefs about them. There's also plenty of messianics who don't believe in speaking in tongues, but there are plenty who do. And it's because they came from the Pentecostal movement. What an interesting mashup. Oh yeah. I mean, it must, uh, you know, growing up in this and then learning after you, I assume, like, at what point did you go, okay, hang on, Some, all this stuff I grew up with is one version of reality, but what what's the more accepted version? Like, how, how did you mm. start busting out of this? Because you had controlled internet, you were, I mean, Lifton's milieu control applies very strictly to the, the environment you described growing up in, strict parents, no TV, very controlled internet. So even 
growing up in the modern age where digital and virtual reality is, you know, or, or the, the virtual world is just as real as, as the real world, but not for you. Yeah. Um, how'd you, how'd you bust out of that? <laughs> oh gosh. Um, it, it honestly, I might not have, if not for my sexuality, that was really an eye opener for me. And mm. it was a long struggle my whole life. And it's been a big part of my trauma, but, uh, I was in college and I started to hear from a teacher, other perspectives about human sexuality. And, um, it made me ask questions that I had not been able to ask. It made me get answers I had not been able to get before. Mm. And, uh, uh, I was in conversion therapy at the time. I, I've been in conversion therapy since I was 16 years old, 15 years old. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, um, by conversion therapy, do you mean going and seeing a licensed psychologist and getting... No. Yeah. So what do you mean by conversion um, therapy? We, 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 okay. That seems like a rather loose use of that term. It does, doesn't it? Um, in my state where I live, mm -hmm. uh, there is no legal guideline on what can be considered therapy. <laughs> you can literally do anything, charge money for it, and call it therapy legally in my state, Got first it. of all. So okay. there's that. Um, <laughs> so even even if it doesn't matter, you don't need to be licensed. You don't need to, to have efficacy. You can just call a therapy and legally charge money for it. Um, Must be nice. Okay. <laughs> right. But uh, additionally, even states that do have uh, tighter regulations against conversion therapy or other, you know, non-scientific practices, there is nothing really that the government can, or I should say will do to stop religious leaders from offering those kind of therapies as religious counseling. Right. And pastoral so, <laughs> counseling gets a pass almost uniformly in the United right, States. Exactly. In the same way that the IRS will never investigate someone who is a religious institution for tax fraud. They just won't do it uh, because it's too political. That's right. So uh, mm. my, my story of conversion therapy, um, first of all, I, I am cisgendered male. I use he pronouns. Uh, and I am bisexual by which I mean I have an attraction to people of all different kinds of genders, transgender experience, not transgender, people who are the same as me, people who are different. Um, I don't use that to mean I'm only attracted to men or women, and actually most bisexuals don't. Um, but I also use the terms gay and queer as kind of like umbrella terms for my experience. Um, so you might hear me use any of those. And also, like, for much of this time, I, I did not have my identity figured out. So at that time, I wasn't using any of those kind of terms for myself. Um, but when I was 15 years old, uh, I was struggling a lot with my mental health and physical health and everything. I, I grew up in a very traumatic environment, like many evangelicals. Our parents were, our parents physically beat us, uh, both of them. Uh, mm. I've, I've been... I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I've been like, you know, the spanking and the the discipline and everything. But also our father was actually very physically abusive and, and literally beat us. Um, 
And I had also been, I had childhood sexual abuse. Uh, I was bullied for my sexuality. Uh, I was sexually abused in middle school by other students. Uh, I had been in an abusive relationship in my young teen years with an older man. I say man, he was young, but he was, you know, over the age of consent and I was very much not. Um, and that was, was physically and emotionally abusive. Um, so it had just been very, a very tough road for me already. Um, I had problems at that time with eating disorders and with self-injury and um, all of that kind of came to a head and I got outed to my mom by someone who had seen me with this older guy. And so she, <laughs> you know, not respecting privacy in the way that parents who have the entire internet on a proxy server are likely to do. She snooped in all of my stuff and she found my journals and things. And she took me to a doctor, a medical doctor, uh, a general practitioner. And she took me to our family doctor who was an evangelical Christian, which is why he was the family doctor. Uh, because you'll find that these kind of religious fundamentalists don't want or believe in healthcare that is not from uh, other evangelicals. Like mm. many evangelicals will not go to psychiatrists, psychologists, counselors, or therapists unless they are Christian. Right. Um, so he, <laughs> he diagnosed me actually with gender identity disorder. I have the medical records in my closet. Um, which at that time was still a disorder in the DSM-4. It's not anymore. Um, and also it's not, it doesn't describe my experience. Gender identity disorder is essentially, they were pathologizing what we now know as dysphoria, where people of trans experience, um, their body and their mind do not feel connected. The gender that their body presents as and the gender that they are, are disconnected for them. And it can be very painful and traumatizing. Um, and that's not my experience. Um, I'm very, <laughs> I would say I'm dysphoric about my body or dysmorphic about my body in the sense that I had an eating disorder, but not dysphoric in that I want to be female. I have no interest in that. I'm, I'm very confident and happy as a man. But anyway, he, he not knowing or caring anything, uh, I did, diagnosed me with gender identity disorder and he sat me down and he, for over an hour, talked to me about how uh, Jesus was the truth and had a plan for my life and how God had created us male and female and we were supposed to, you know, marriage was between a man and a woman and sex was for a man and a woman. May I ask what state this was? This was in Virginia. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Just so, yeah. just so the audience is clear on what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this was, I was 15 years old. I was born in 1993. So this was 2015. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and he, he told me very plainly, I will never forget that my depression my anxiety, my self-harm, my insomnia. He literally listed from my medical history. Um, my, my migraines that I was having, I have a skin condition where I present basically a skin allergy to the sensation of being cold. Um, all of my medical problems, physical and emotional, he said were because of my sexuality and because of the lifestyle and, 
and that if I continued down that path, that it would get worse, that I would have more depression, that I would have, you know, that I would be beset with sexually transmitted diseases, that I would die of AIDS, and that if I stopped living that lifestyle and lived as a heterosexual man and only had sex and attraction for women, that those conditions, you know, anxiety, depression, self-harm, disordered eating, but also migraines, insomnia, you know, my skin condition, that they, those things would be healed as a result of my obedience. It is beyond disgusting to me. And then they did a full a blood draw and panel for STDs and HIV. Yeah. a 15-year-old. Sure, of course. Well, given, I mean, g given the fact that, you know, your mother was concerned about your relationship with an older man, I could understand why some physical testing might be called for. But as far as the rest of what you just said in terms of your sexuality being the cause of your migraines, your depression, your anxiety, and all the rest, that is, Wow. Yeah, it was kind of spine chilling at the time. And I already did not like this doctor. I already did not feel respected by him for many years. And, yeah, I and can see only why. recently did I look in my medical records, which I have from that time, and, and saw that he had also written in the notes from that visit that it was obvious to him, in addition to what my mom had told him privately, that it was obvious to him that I was, you know, had a gay voice and a gay posture and a gay style of interaction. I literally wrote those things. Wow. Um, yeah, wow, deeply. Man. And this this practice, just, just to give you guys an indication of, of what I mean by harmful evangelical culture. We've been talking already about how the father is the head of the household. Yep spiritual authority. At that time, my parents were separated and legally divorced, and my mother had sole custody of us. And that doctor's office would still send any reimbursement for insurance checks to my, our father and not to our mother, right. because he was the head of the household. Yep. And he would not give them back to my mother. And so she was paying out of pocket for medical services that you know, then they they were supposed to be reimbursing because of insurance, and they would send those checks to him because he was the man and the head of the household. Of course, because we're all good Christians. Yeah. Oh my God. That's what it means um, to be a good Christian. So that doctor, then after that visit, he recommended my mom a conversion therapist. Um, this was in twenty fifteen. Say again. This was in twenty fifteen. Yes. You, you know, I swear to God, this guy. I mean, you're describing a, a perfect. It's a perfect description of a medical malpractice suit. Mm, um, I can't say I haven't thought about it. If you, if I don't want to provide the name of the doctor or the practice at this time, yeah, but what I will say is that I've I've been in their Yelp reviews and their Google reviews, and I've seen, you know, how on Yelp businesses cannot pay for these reviews to be altered. Yeah, sure. They have a five-star rating because of their, their reviews are all good. But then you can see the not recommended reviews. And if you click the not recommended reviews, it's pages and pages and pages of what I just told you yeah. from other people uh, of, you know, sending money to the wrong parent on purpose uh, of making sexual comments about people's teenage daughters. Like, oh, my God. I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. Because where there's smoke, there's fire with this stuff. And and we're not talking yeah. about a little bit of smoke with what he just told you. 
Yeah. We're talking about a gross evaluation. Literally threatened me with literal hellfire. Uh, yeah. A doctor. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. A, a literal general practitioner, medical doctor, uh, you know, the person who did all my physicals. <laughs> and I got I to gotta comment on something here as well, which is part of the experience that needs to be highlighted. You were 15 mm. years old. I was. There is no one who is 15 years old who understands a goddamn thing about themselves. You are mm. still figuring well, I stuff understood out. that I liked men very much. Oh, for sure. But it's like, what is <laughs> this supposed to mean? I understood that since I was five. <laughs> with all the rest of it, and especially in an evangelical household, and you have no internet connection, so you have no ability to look up and clarify mm. this information, find out what this is about, find out that there are other people who are in the same situation you are, who are who could use some community. You got. You don't get to have any of that. And yeah. I and I look at the solutions that are offered to you, the quote unquote solutions to the problem of your sexuality. One, they're making a problem out of something that isn't, and two, mm-hmm. the solutions they're providing to you are seem uniformly to be just more abuse. We're getting to that because <laughs> it gets um, worse. So he recommended to us a local counselor who I have since, I found the name in my medical records and the name of the practice he was with at the time. And I've tried to track him down and learn more about him and how he was certified and things um, and have not been able to. So I think he's no longer practicing. Okay. But what I can tell you is that every week we would drive to a actual therapy center where there were multiple therapists and there was, you know, a front office lady and they took your medical insurance information and everything. It seemed very legit. And um, I would have these visits with this conversion therapist and he would, um, I was terribly traumatized by the whole experience. I didn't want anything to do with it. I was so mortified basically that all of my trauma had been outed and told to this person without my consent because I was a minor and my mom just, you know, told him all of my, my trauma and that he was telling me that I had to change my sexuality. And, you know, it was very much the same message. You know, if you don't live as a heterosexual, then you're going to be, you know, diseased and you've talked about how a scientologist in particular used that threat that if you leave scientology that uh that your actual physical body is going to be beset by these diseases and you're going to be cursed and have cancer and aids yeah very much that same experience i was told those things um and and also that all of the things that were wrong in my life including people seeking me out for abuse were the result of my sexuality so i was very much like victim shamed and all of my experiences of being abused were not legitimate those were things that happened to people who are obviously queer and make themselves into targets um so with him i very much shut down and would not talk i literally would go sit in his office for an hour and not talk um and he would talk to me and uh that lasted until that that probably lasted a few months and my mom realized she was throwing her money down the drain so after a few months of not seeing anyone uh she found out that i had been um fun fact you can get around proxy servers if you know what you're doing (laughs) um so she found out that i had been cheating the proxy server and starting to like look up things about sexuality also to access pornography obviously what else are 15 year olds doing (laughs) um of course 
Yeah. And, and so, boom, I had to go right back and see someone else. Only this time she came with me. And we went to see a family therapist who also specialized in sexuality. And there were even some sessions that my younger brother was in, uh, which was deeply mortifying. Um, and again, I tried as much as possible not to participate. Uh, and I was just, you know, it was my personal hour of hell every week where I would go and get lectured about my sexuality. And, you know, my friends at the time, some of them knew that this was happening. Uh, it was so embarrassing. It was so upsetting. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm sorry you had to experience yeah, that, man. Yeah. And, and, and then <laughs> uh, when I... Now, these are licensed therapists? These were licensed therapists. Yeah, in the state of Virginia. I assume. I assume. Well, yeah, they had doctor. I mean, they, they called themselves doctors. There were like diplomas on the wall. Yeah. Things. Yeah. These yeah. were trained. Um, people. Yeah. I couldn't tell you personally. I can tell you the name of the medical doctor who diagnosed me with gender identity disorder. I couldn't tell you anything about those two therapists because it was so. I, I couldn't even make eye contact with them at yeah. the time. So I can't remember their names. And what I've been able to find from my medical records is basically nothing. So I think they're not practicing anymore. I think that they've kind of disappeared Folded. from the scene or at least closed down that form of therapy it sends to it, it's looking no more i mean i can't find unpopular. their names anywhere oh, i, get I, it. I, I can't get find it. that they're practicing anywhere I get um but it does it does it. seem to appear that this brand of quote-unquote therapy is at least popularly unpopular seems to be yeah. i mean there are regulations now coming into play there are states that are banning it there are places where this is be being recognized as a very serious problem there are and um i have some <laughs> i have some feelings about that i do think conversion therapy should be banned mm -hmm. um i think that that is going to be one of the fights that we see play out in the Supreme Court um, yeah, <laughs> because probably. there are already some conversion therapy bans that are starting to be overturned by uh, Republican and conservative judges. Right. And there are other states that have not been able to ban conservative therapy. But what I would say, or sorry, conversion <laughs> therapy. Um, <laughs> I know, that what was I would a Freudian slip, wasn't it? <laughs> let me tell you, these people are all conservative. There are, there's no such thing as a liberal messianic, though. There's, there's hardly such a thing as a liberal evangelical. Um, uh, I think that a lot of the legislation that's coming out banning conversion therapy uh, is banning it for children, which is right. certainly good. Minors should not be subjected to that. I think that it is a form of torture. Whether whether you are physically, you know, I don't think anyone is electroshocked anymore. Thank God. If they are, that's horrible. But whether or not, you know, it's still, I think it's a form of abuse. I think it's a form of torture and minors should not be subjected to it. But the yep. problem is, and this is also partly my story, is that many people who are in these religious environments where they're, you know, they don't have any degree of control over their own lives, their parents or their congregational leaders do, essentially. Even after they turn 18, many people are caught in this environment where they feel like, or they literally do have to undergo these therapies. For me, I, I went back to conversion therapy voluntarily when I turned, I think, 19, um, because I was having a lot of mental health relapses around the time I had started self-harming again. 
Mm. I was very suicidal. I was deeply depressed. I had actually made a suicide attempt and uh, everyone around me is telling me and pressuring me that these things are because of my sexuality. I don't know anyone who's telling me anything different. My, you know, the people I live with, I don't, I don't have a way of putting a roof over my own head are telling me that I have to do this. Um, and I felt very like it was my only option. Right. Um, and I think that that's true for a lot of people who are over the age of 18 in conversion therapy. So I would like to see the practice banned completely because there's no scientific efficacy and I think it's always harmful. And I think that often people find themselves trapped in it over the age of 18. Exactly. Well, I think that what we're dealing with here, if you look at it strictly from a, you know, an academic scientific point of view, there is no, there's no legit peer reviewed, understood, well replicated series of studies that nail the quote-unquote cause of homosexuality, mm -hmm. bisexuality, transgenderism, LGBT, any pick, pick your letter, there simply isn't any such thing. There are a ton of conjecture about mm -hmm. this topic, as there is a ton of conjecture about why serial killers exist, why cult leaders are the way they are, why abusers abuse. These are huge questions that we've been studying for centuries, really seriously only studying actually for a couple of decades if we really want to get strict you know serious mm -hmm. about it yeah these things are in their infancy yeah you know uh, and i'm not talking about the soft sciences i'm talking about the harder parts of this the neuroscience <laughs> the you know the biology etc right you can dive in and go as far down the rabbit hole as you want to go i have and i'm telling you that this is there is no settled science on this one way or the other so Basically, conversion therapy is going to be, at its best, somebody trying to talk you out of your sexuality, and at worst, is going to be abusive physical means, you know, measures taken to try to beat it out of you, pray it out of you, blah, blah, blah it out of you, mm -hmm. when there is no understanding of what is causing it in the first place. Yeah. So... It's kind of like going to get a tattoo removed and they start beating you in the stomach instead. Yeah. It's like, yeah. what are we doing here? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I would like to jump off of that and, and talk more about how my conversion therapy evolved over time because everything you've said just leads into. I'm all ears. So well. Okay. So. I told you, I reached this point of, of mental breakdown and I, I was not functioning. Um, I was so stressed literally that my hair was falling out um, and it grew back thankfully, but like literally chunks of my hair, you could see my scalp Wow! just from how much stress was in my body. Yeah. And um, I ended up once again, <laughs> my mom without my consent, you know, told all of my trauma to someone and trapped me into therapy. Only this time she decided that she should go to our congregational leader in the messianic movement. And he became my, con my conversion therapist until I was 21. Wow. And during that time, I think this is perhaps a unique experience. Uh, this might surprise people. Um, I actually lived in his house with his family. 
24 7 yeah okay here we I, go i would sometimes go to my family's house on you know one day on a weekend or something but pretty much i was i literally lived there i had a bed all my things were there um and i was working with you know his wife got me a job and i was working with one of his sons in, um in their city uh i was going to school with his daughter who is one of my closest friends um i you know literally lived in their home and every week would also have conversion therapy in their home um, with with their dad who was our congregational leader he called himself a rabbi and was not an ordained rabbi i actually don't even think he's an ordained pastor or minister uh, but i could be wrong just some guy who likes to call himself <laughs> the local religious leader um well, okay, so he was a missionary for a specific messianic organization, and I don't know what kind of training or licensing and everything they do. And I also know that he his as a therapist, I know which evangelical counseling therapy organization in the area he was trained and certified through but mm -hmm. i don't think certified is a strong word here because they're not i don't think a legitimate therapy organization they're a, a christian counseling nonprofit group right um we have he, to we have to be let me i'm sorry to interrupt you but we have to be real cautious and not you and me i mean the world <laughs> at large the people in general the audience right you really need to pay attention do your due diligence because these words that are that are scientific sounding or like certified exactly you yeah. know these are anybody all that means is that you got a certificate the church right. of scientology gave me probably about 50 certificates in the years that i was there i'm a certified auditor certified word clear certified course supervisor and it means nothing <laughs> so yeah so just because you're certified doesn't all that means is somebody took a piece of paper and wrote your name on it and said you're this you know yeah um he was like many congregational leaders in the messianic movement certainly in my part um he was also a speaker and a missionary who would tour and and do speaking engagements at churches for money he would host passover seders at other churches for money regular evangelical christian churches um he led our congregation and he also you know did pastoral counseling which they don't call it pastoral counseling because they don't like the word pastor uh, because it's one of those christian cultural obstacles to converting jews but essentially that's what it was and he i know that he was trained in in counseling specifically through a local organization to me who uh I also believe to not be a valid, you know, mental health institution. They are, nice. they are essentially a Christian organization. And the nature of my conversion therapy with him was very different than it had ever been before, because this is someone that I knew personally. So it was not an option for me to just sit there and not <laughs> engage, which had been my previous tactic. Um, and also because he used different techniques than therapists had used personally. Before, I had essentially been seeing actual licensed therapists who believed that homosexuality was wrong because of their personal faith. Here they have a patient who they're told has the same faith as them, so they're allowed to say that in the session. And so they would just talk to me. Um, but he used a technique called theophostic prayer ministry i don't know if you're familiar with theophostic prayer ministry you're gonna have to tell me all about okay. this i i will um <laughs> 
Theophostic prayer ministry was invented in the 90s by an evangelical pastor, a Baptist pastor. I think he's a pastor. Um, his name is Ed Smith. I know he's a Baptist. Certainly we can say he's a Baptist. Um, by Ed Smith in the 1990s. And he originally called it Theophostic Prayer Counseling. And he very, very wisely renamed it Theophostic Prayer Ministry in order to avoid lawsuits basically. Um, and are you familiar with, <laughs> this is, this is a lot. Are you familiar with the satanic panic? Oh yes. Okay. I, I, I lived through it. Absolutely. Great. Yeah. Theophostic prayer ministry is the satanic panic repackaged basically. Um, yes. quite literally. So the, the whole thing of the satanic panic for anyone who is perhaps not familiar and is listening, um, there was a Freudian idea of psychology. Freud is considered a father of modern psychology, although he had many ideas that were very, very wrong, and this is one of them. He believed that when humans are exposed to trauma, that the brain cannot handle it and that the brain hides that trauma and represses it. And that through psychoanalysis and his brand of therapy, and also through cocaine, he was, he was a great prescriber of cocaine, that you could uncover these memories and confront that trauma, and then you would not have symptoms from it anymore. That's one of Freud's ideas. And psychologists uh, in the satanic panic era were using that idea, and they were doing something called recovered memory therapy through hypnosis. So they were putting people in a hypnotized state, which is essentially a suggestible state where you're open to suggestions. Uh, not everyone is hypnotizable, some more easily than others. And they were then asking people to uncover these traumatic memories and often verbally prompting them. And that when the brain is in this suggestible state, we now know the brain will treat invented memories as if they are long-term memories. Um, it kind of bypasses short-term and the brain just says, oh, this is a real long-term memory that we've uncovered and it feels real to you. Yep. I don't think that I have any false memories as a result of this therapy, only because the trauma that I know about, about in my life um, I remember remembering it. I've told other people about it. I've been dealing with this trauma since I was a child. Some of them are since I was a teenager. Long before I had Theophostic Prayer Ministry, I have things that I've written about it since before then. I have people I've told about it before that happened. So I don't think that my personal trauma is invented under hypnosis, but that is essentially what Theophostic Prayer Ministry is. So in the Satanic Panic, there were people who in these hypnosis memory confessions said that they had been abused as children sexually, that there were people practicing child sacrifice and burying them under basement floors and things. And people actually went to prison over it. Right. And now uh, hypnosis testimony is no longer admissible in court, thankfully. But we're not talking about court. We're talking about Ed Smith and his hokey evangelical counseling scheme. So, the theology of Theophostic prayer ministry is basically that Jesus dwells in your heart and therefore you no longer have original sin. Your sin nature has been taken away and replaced with Jesus. So you should not have any more inclination to sin to do evil, and you should not have any more emotional suffering as a result of 
sin or trauma or things because you should be healed by Jesus. So this obviously presents a problem because obviously that is not what people experience. Well, I'm, I am positive that that is the case. I would like to provide a little bit more detail if I might ask yeah. you about this because I looked up the Theophostic mm-hmm. prayer ministry process. Yeah. There's a Wikipedia page on this. I'm sure there is. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the Wikipedia page. I've read, um, there's, a, there's a book called The Failure of Evangelical Mental Health Care that talks about Theophostic prayer ministry a little bit. Um, and I've seen a lot of Ed Smith's own videos on the subject, um, mm-hmm. which are more telling than I think he intended them to be. I, I'm sure that's true. I saw, I see, when I looked it up here, the first thing that came up was Ed Smith on video. Mm-hmm. I just want to ask about this process because yeah. it's a weird mashup of psychotherapy and, and faith-based um, faith, yeah. really, you know. So the process is about dealing with traumatic memories mm-hmm. because their explanation essentially for why believing Christians still experience mental anguish and still experience temptation, temptation to sin. And by temptation to sin, I mean homosexuality inclination, but also, uh, you know, anyone who has sexual urges, which are just a normal human desire in Christian theology, those are considered sins having sexual thoughts about someone else is a sin. It's a thought crime, basically. So if you're still having those, why are you still having those when Jesus has replaced your will? So they think that you have some traumatic memory from before your salvation, before Jesus entered you, that is still hurt and unhealed by Jesus because you haven't let Jesus into that part of you and that that's what you need to do. And they promise that their their belief is that if you do that work and you bring Jesus into those traumatized areas of your past, that you will live a life with no mental suffering, no sadness, no depression, no anxiety, and no inclination to sin ever. No sexual thoughts, (laughs) Uh, aside from, you know, pure married sexual thoughts. So the way they do this is you, you sit or lay down, with your eyes closed and the therapist leads you in prayer. And what they're then looking for is for you to bring a feeling into the room. And that is a feeling that you obviously, a feeling that you want to get rid of essentially. So it could be anger. It could be sadness. It could be low self-esteem. It could be more developed. So it could be like, I feel like I'm worthless or like, I feel like I deserve, you know, to suffer or like, I think I'm always going to fail at things. So you bring your feeling into the room and at that, your, your eyes are closed. You're being verbally coached by the therapist. Stage one is your feeling. Then you are supposed to talk about the memory, the earliest memory you can think of where you felt that way or a very similar way. And you have to talk through that memory in the first person and in the present tense. And that is, very important to them. Ed Smith has actually, uh, this is what I mean when I say he reveals more than he means to. Ed Smith has said on some videos that people not keeping their eyes closed, not staying focused, not staying in the correct time grammar of like, I am entering the room, um, that that can be because a demon is inhabiting them and preventing the therapy. Um, 
So you have to use this present tense language. Your eyes are closed. I am, I, I, I am experiencing this. And you recount your traumatic memory that you think is linked to that feeling. Mm -hmm. So if you feel, you know, worthless, it could be a memory of being bullied or abused or whatever. And then from, from your feeling to your memory, uh, the therapist wants you to admit what belief you have accepted about yourself or about the world from that memory. So maybe I feel worthless, I was abused, or I am being abused, I am seven years old, I am on the front porch of my house, my dad is hitting me. Um, and then I say, I believe that I am worthless because I, you know, experienced this and, and I thought that people who were supposed to protect me did not want to, therefore I must not have value. So you say what your belief is that you gained from that memory. And then through prayer, you ask Jesus and God to speak to you and to give you a new belief, um, which <laughs> doesn't happen, first of all. <laughs> well, I was just, I, I have so many questions, so please. Yeah. Yeah. Can... Uh, it doesn't happen. Oh, I should say also that uh, when I was when I was doing more research about this, I always encountered the eyes closed version of this. But I have, I think Ed Smith in his own videos, but certainly I have heard of people experiencing this type of theophostic prayer ministry with an EMDR machine. Um, so <laughs> uh, yeah, the little PTSD moving light thingy. Um, so then Jesus is supposed to speak to you, which obviously does not happen. And if it does, you may have other problems. And you're supposed to get this new belief. Only the thing is that then you should stop having that experience. You should stop feeling worthless. You should stop being depressed. You should stop being anxious. You should stop being gay, whatever it is that you're being treated for. Right. And then that doesn't happen. And so the, the theophostic prayer ministry answer to that is you must have an earlier trauma that you have not dealt with. And so then in your next session, your therapist will go looking for the earlier trauma. And when you get from the feeling stage to the memory stage, they're now looking for an earlier memory than you gave in the last session. Does this sound at all familiar to you from anything I've ever talked about? Um, I have felt very, I don't know that it's necessarily the same techniques, but I've seen, I think also in your interview with Telltale, you talking about uh, the Scientology process and it does feel very similar in that it is a very ritualized, essentially form of brainwashing where you are with an authority figure and there's a scientific process and you are accepting their beliefs about you. Um, well, let me tell you just a tad more because what, what you're describing is almost exactly Dianetics. Mm. With yeah. a prayer. With, a, with <laughs> prayer. It's prayer before and then it's Jesus to come in and take yeah. out the, the trauma that you've uncovered with this going earlier thing, that going earlier thing is straight up out of Dianetics and probably yeah. 10,000 other therapy models. But Yes, and I know. think that it's because all of those uh, pseudo-therapy techniques go back to Freudian ideas. That's right. And I think a lot of the ideas right. were just straight up wrong, and people at that time did not 
accept that. Nope. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> they didn't, it's, or they didn't know. It requires this little thing called studies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it requires this little Ethical thing called studies. time and effort and, yeah, and scientific study. And this is something that doesn't get done nearly well enough in the field of psychology, much right. less in this psycho-religious mashup yes. that you are describing, right? Yes. Which, of course, I, doesn't work. Yeah. I want to clarify also that, like, of course, not all messianics undergo theophostic prayer ministry, although I'm sure many others have. Um, and not all undergo conversion therapy, but I certainly think it's an abusive group because I did undergo this. I feel traumatized by this and I did lose, you know, everybody I had known in my life pretty much as a result of my leaving that therapy and leaving that group. Um, so you yeah. got to a point where you got sick of this and just said, okay, look, I'm done. Or how did that, what, yeah, let's go so... ahead and finish your, what, what happened? Let me, let me finish about yeah. the therapy process first. So yeah, yeah. Um, this is when you get into like the suggestible state and leading questions. So you've been, to you've been told that now your symptoms should go away. You've had the session. You, you should be healed and no longer experience any type of pain or temptation or whatever as a result of that trauma. But you still do, obviously, because you haven't gotten any kind of effective treatment. And let me say also that at no point in my whole life until I left the Messianic movement, was I ever offered any type of valid therapy or any type of medication for depression or any type of actual treatment for eating disorders or uh, self-harm or anything that I was experiencing. I was just very much on my own with this psychotherapy. Right. Um, so they then want you to have an earlier memory in the next session to get at the root and to root this thing out of your life. But you might not have an earlier memory than that. Mm -hmm. Often you don't. Um, and so the therapist will prompt you verbally, which Ed Smith says they're not supposed to do, but I can tell you that mine certainly did. And that I think most of them are prompting um, looking for earlier memories and they, uh, they're looking for specific memories for specific circumstances because of their scriptural beliefs. So they don't think obviously that people are born queer or anything. They, they think that that happens as a result of some type of environmental trauma. And they have a list of what environmental traumas they think cause same-sex attraction. They use the term same-sex attraction because they don't believe sexuality is a part of your identity. They think it's something you experience, a symptom. Mm. Um, so they, my therapist, for example, was digging and looking specifically for memories about an overbearing relationship with my mother, an absent or abusive father, and childhood sexual abuse. I happen to have all three of those things, uh, but that is, you know, studies have shown that there is actually not a correlation between those things and, and sexuality. Uh, these people believe there's a correlation between being abused as a child and growing up gay, but there, there's not actually a data correlation that they can point to. Mm -hmm. But those were the memories that, that he was digging and looking for, basically. It was very uncomfortable. Um, and it did definitely get to this point of, I don't have anything else to tell you, um, but you're still asking me to come up with new content every week for this therapy that is not helping me. 
Um, and I mentioned that during all this time, I was in school with his daughter and we were at a local community college and we took a psychology class together. And that was the beginning of my whole life changing. So we're in this psychology class. Uh, I loved the teacher. She was really great. And she had us all stand up. We got to the unit on human sexuality. It was just Psych 101. And she had everyone stand up and she had everyone who believed that human sexuality was innate at birth go stand on one side of the room. And everyone who thought that, you know, people who are gay and trans or whatever, and that they develop those things as a result of their environment to stand on the other side of the room. And I went to stand with my friend on the environment side of the room because that was all I had been told my whole life. And I hadn't literally hadn't had any access to other media about that. And she told us that she was going to change our minds <laughs> and she did. And she, she proceeded to just show us the studies that there were and the data that there was and, and show us that that was a belief you know, the idea that sexuality is caused by events, that that's a belief, but that you can't scientifically support it. And that it's more scientifically supportable that, you know, sexuality is part of who people are and that it's with them for their whole life, even in early childhood years. And that there's no correlation, like I just said, between abuse and sexuality. And it really like rocked my world. <laughs> and, uh, made me question everything in ways that I had not felt free to question things before. And I started to identify at that time as bisexual when before I had only, uh, I knew that I was interested in having sex with people of different genders, of many different genders, but I didn't identify as anything. I identified as heterosexual because I thought that all people were heterosexual and that I was just suffering somehow. I see. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's what they believe. So I started to identify as bisexual and I started to, I was very versed in Christian theology because I attended a very rigorous Anglican high school um, and, and no Christian theology and church history in and out. Um, and I started to read about Jewish theology from Jewish sources, uh, as opposed to Jewish theology from Christian sources pretending to be Jewish. Mm -hmm. And I realized that everything I thought I knew about Jewish theology was wrong. And the ways that I had been told that Judaism and Christianity were consistent and compatible, they were not. And that basically no one else thought this way about the world. No one else thought that Jewish and Christian practices and beliefs could be integrated in this way. Even other Christians are often critical of the Messianic movement because they think they're too legalistic. They think they're Judaizers. Um, they think for theological reasons, they think that the law doesn't apply to Christians who are under Christ's salvation. So even Christians often don't like the Messianic movement or disagree with them. Jews certainly don't like them. They think of them as uh, like, <laughs> that while well, they're preying on Jews for conversion. So Jews obviously don't like them. Yeah, they're fake wannabe weirdos. Right, I mean, <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so I learned that like everything I had been told about theology and Judaism was wrong that there was actually a Jewish theology that was not, or many Jewish theologies, I should say, but that was not what I had been told and not consistent with what I had been told. And so I reached this place in my life around 21 where I 
what I identify this as my physically in mentally out right. place right. Um, where I didn't believe it anymore at all. Um, and I, and I didn't identify myself as that anymore. I started to identify as bisexual, but everyone I knew was in the movement literally everybody, or I also had many friends who were evangelical Christians, but very similar, half of one. Now, were you going to, you were going to, uh, just so I can kind of make sure I get a clear picture here, mm -hmm. were you going to a regular public college, community college, university? Okay, so not, Um, so a non-religious institution. Yes, although I, I went to a small evangelical Christian high school, and Uh, I did not go to a bigger university because of uh, a lot of financial hardship on our family at the time um, and ended up at a community college. But almost everyone I knew who did go to college went, they went to Liberty and Grove City and Pensacola. They did go to Christian colleges. It's you know, all the messianics I knew who were going to college that was not community college. They went to Moody Bible Institute. They went to, uh, People, they they they're going to evangelical Christian colleges, basically messianics. Okay, um, so, so they're staying and they're making a concerted effort, or oh yeah. or their parents are making a concerted effort if they're the ones paying for it to to stay in the bubble world. Mm, oh yeah, yeah. But um, you're all through but, high so school. Was it, we were warned about how college, if we went to a secular college, that it was going to attack our faith, and we okay. were prepared for that. Oh yeah, very much. The culture is um, anti-college. They think that messianics, in particular, attack colleges not only for being anti-religion but for being anti-Israel. They see Palestinian support and criticism of the state of Israel as anti-Semitism. So Messianics tend to be very anti-mainstream college. They think that they're like liberal think tanks that are like breeding grounds for Satan, basically. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Not to put too fine a point on it. No, no, I understood. And and I have a question though, because uh, your best friend, his daughter, Mm-hmm. going to the school too how how could they not afford well it was my conversion therapist and my congregational leader and his daughter was one of my best friends yeah um actually before before everything went down and she shunned me i was supposed to be in her wedding in a few months oh wow um yeah yeah it had been quite okay. crazy so yeah. she was so she was holding on to her faith during this process but you yeah. were like question yeah. mark question mark question mark question mark question mark oh my god what the hell's going on here yeah, and I, okay. I really feel um, I, I was very successfully indoctrinated by Messianic and evangelical organizations my whole life. And um, I was very politically conservative because everyone I knew was very politically conservative. And I only ever heard evil things about the left and liberalism. And I, I don't know if I would have been uh, brave enough or smart enough or, you know, whatever to break out of that environment if I had not had something that forced me to. And essentially my sexuality, I feel forced me out of that because if I had stayed, I probably would have killed myself. I would have been so unhappy and miserable there. Um, And you can't be openly gay or bisexual and live, you, you just can't do that in the Messianic movement. I don't know anyone who did. And in fact, Anytime there was another queer young man or someone who set my gaydar off or something, they would often disappear. And some of them I know disappeared because they were kicked out because they started to uh, 
you know, live as who they are and, and stop being celibate and denying themselves. And they got kicked out. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is a legit one of the reasons why we are one of the many reasons, but definitely one of the reasons why we are seeing the plummeting of people who are, you know, self-identifying as religious. Which is interesting because I actually do still self-identify as very religious. <laughs> <laughs> but, not, but are you connected with an organized religion? Yeah, I would say so. I'm, I'm Just Jewish. Not messianic. I, I go to synagogue. <laughs> I I work in Jewish organizations. I work in uh, part-time in Jewish education. Um, I I think Judaism, we often joke, is a disorganized religion. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the same reaction to religious trauma that many of my Christian queer friends have. I know a lot of, of young men who are very disenfranchised from all religion and very traumatized and just hate it. Um, and I understand that certainly. I feel that level of animosity towards, um, certainly towards evangelical Christianity and the messianic movement towards all Christian fundamentalism and biblical literalism, um, kind of towards Christianity in general, honestly, it's been, it's, <laughs> it has not been a great religion to my people, I would say. And uh, a lot of the ideas that I, I can point to and say, this is a religious idea that hurt me growing up are found in the New Testament. Right. Um, so I have a lot of dislike for Christianity, but I still consider myself very religious. I kind of am an atheist, maybe an agnostic, but still I live a pretty religious life. I don't eat unkosher species. I still, you know, I pray before and after I eat food. I try to pray in the mornings when I can with a, a Jewish adults are supposed to pray in groups of 10 or more. So obviously that is problematic during COVID. Um, <laughs> but I do try to engage with my synagogue and with my Jewish community as much as I can, definitely on holidays. Um, and I consider myself religious and kind of spiritual, but more humanistic. I think more I would say my life is guided by tradition, but not dictated by tradition. Fair enough. What... I, just because I'm curious, I, I it's not something I ask people about very often, but mm. you mentioned two things that strike me as somewhat contradictory in my understanding. You pray and you consider Don't yourself in God. kind of atheist. <laughs> yeah, who are you praying to? What's, what's that about? Um, prayer in Judaism is very different than prayer in Christianity, mm -hmm. or certainly in evangelical Christianity. I would say the prayer culture of evangelical Christianity that most people think of when they think of praying has to do with having a spontaneous dialogue or monologue, if you're a realist, with God, uh, where you're just extemporaneously, you know, stream of consciousness speaking to God, and then you end with, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, and, and there's linguistic tropes that people use in their prayer language and and but it's mostly uh, you know off the cuff uh conversation with with the sky daddy if you will uh and prayer in judaism is not that at all <laughs> mm. uh prayer in judaism is very prescribed 
Um, and Judaism is basically a religion of text study. If you love text study, you will love Judaism. Um, you don't even have to agree with the text. You just have to study the text. <laughs> um, and you can have many different opinions about it. But, but um, I would say text study is one of the unifying factors. And Jews can and do pray extemporaneously. But for the most part, when we talk about praying in Judaism, we're talking about using specific written, you know, poems and, and language that are prescribed for different daily events, life cycles, um, holidays that are in many cases, thousands of years old, um, that our people have been saying for thousands of years. And uh, many people find, I myself find it meaningful to engage in the way that we pray with these ancient texts. And, and there's, it's also highly ritualized. Like we don't pray with our eyes open. We pray reading from a book. We pray certain prayers only standing up. We use certain ritual prayer objects. Um, those processes, I think can help you find meaning in your daily life. You can put some of your emotions like grief into prayer um, and, and use that as a way to help you through the human experience. Um, but I don't necessarily think that anyone is listening to me. Okay. If that makes any sense. No, it does. It does. As, as a, um, I mean, is it comforting? Is it, is it, is it, is that the point? Is it, it as a ritual? Um, sometimes a... it's not. Sometimes it's very upsetting. Um, mm. <laughs> I remember I, it was during like the beginning of the pandemic and I was saying part of the prayer for after dinner and, Part of it is like a list of thanking God for all of these blessings that were not present in my life at that time. And a God that I don't believe in thanking for things that I don't have uh, <laughs> made me cry. Uh, but I think, but I still do it. Uh, it's still meaningful to me sometimes and it's different every time. Cool. Well, I got zero judgment on it. I was just curious about how it was, how you were manifesting yeah. that. So that's, uh, that's fascinating, man. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely different from, I think, many people who leave high control religious groups and then go on to talk about it, left some form of Christianity and become some form of atheist and never really engage with religious practices or religious cultures that are different from Christianity. And Judaism is actually significantly different from Christianity. Prayer, like, like prayer and, and it doesn't feel disingenuous with me to stay connected to my religion and not believe in a God. Fair enough. And some days I think maybe I do believe in God. I think, I think God is like a literary idea almost of like our most important and precious things to us, our deepest values. We ascribe those to God. We kind of project those onto God. And in a cult, in, a, in an abusive religious environment, you see that what's happening is the leadership is putting only their ideas into the God box, and they're defining what God is to the point that essentially they become God because they and God share all the same views. Bingo. Um, yeah, but I, I think that if you take a big step back and look at that from a, a wider cultural perspective, in a way that's not abusive and controlling and unhealthy, that there is something that can be meaningful about almost enshrining our deepest values as a culture together and 
what that means. And so for me, when I think about God, I don't picture a literal being. I think about things like respecting other people and the sanctity of all life and the fact that all humans are created in the image of God. And what does that mean that we're all worthy of respect? Um, I think about relationships and like, when I think about the universe and eternity, those kind of concepts are also very bound up in my, my idea of God. But my idea of God is very metaphorical. As uh, as I think, uh, if if I were going to talk about God in any way, it'd be my my sense of that as well. Yeah, you know, I um, I, I don't have a thing about some guy who's listening to my prayers or listening to me or paying any attention whatsoever no. to anything going on here. Yeah, you know, um, people talk about God having a plan, and you know, my idea is is sort of yeah, it's about as much about as much plan as there is with you know, I don't know. Uh, having a pet, having an ant farm. I don't know, you know, like, like what are we supposed to conceive of with this, with this, with this super being? But regardless of any of that, I am curious, uh, moving forward here now, because you, you know, you are clearly somebody who has done some research on this. Like I said, we're going to link to your blog. You, you know, people can read up on this and you've done some writing and some research about this. And I want to do nothing but, you know, positively reinforce that 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 effort because that's exactly i think what catharsis is made of yeah you know is education is understanding is is figuring out what the hell just happened to me so i can sort it out for myself because clearly years of quote unquote trauma therapy or conversion therapy did nothing for you but re-traumatize you over yeah. and over and over again absolutely um that's why it was important to me to speak with you today and why i reached out because I know that there are still people who are in the messianic movement who are suffering the kind of things that I was suffering and and in other ways, and I'm sure in worse ways. And at that time, I more, when I was young, I desperately more than anything else would have wanted to hear from someone who had been through what I had been through and had come out the other side happy and healthy. And that just did not exist. I literally didn't think that that existed. Um, And it's, even when you hear other stories about people who survived, often if their experience is very different than yours, it can be hard to relate. Like I I related a lot to Christiana Miner's experience that you covered and we came from pretty different backgrounds. (laughs) There were many things that like just did not line up. Um, so it's important to me because I know that there are other people who are still suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Big time. And that's why we're doing this, you know, because, because also I'm quite sure that while we have focused on the, um, you know, gay conversion therapy, the theophostic prayer ministry methodology, Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure that a lot of what we've talked about would have applicability or, you know, some, uh, would somehow apply to other forms of this or to people who are suffering under under similar circumstances. And I hope this message is the, that our, our show reaches them too. Because they, I think people need to recognize this stuff is nonsense. Yeah. And really just stay away from it. Because if you don't understand what's causing something, 
if you don't understand where, wh why we act the way we do, and and there's very little about that that we actually get still so far, right, in our research on this, then you have absolutely no business whatsoever making claims like Ed Smith does that you can quote unquote cure somebody of a condition that is not a curable illness or problem mm. that way. It's not even that, it's not an illness. Yeah, you know? I don't know if Ed Smith has personally made claims that Theo Foster prayer ministry is uh, is effective at treating same-sex attraction, is mm. how they would say it. Mm. Um, excuse mm. you. <laughs> Um, I don't know if he's made those claims personally, although I know it was used against me in that way. But he he uses that therapy uh, for all types of trauma and for people who are uh, just suffering from, you know, depression or anxiety and things as well. Right. And with it, and and clearly from the from the process of it, um, and this is this is of interest to me professionally. Right. Um, you know, the process here is really no, no, very, very similar in many ways to Dianetics or other forms of psychotherapy that rely on a principle of the earlier is the better, mm -hmm. you know, and the earlier you can get, the, the, the more effective the, the therapy is going to be and the mm -hmm. more broad its, its effects are going to be in, in, in uh, healing you or curing you of whatever ails you because of this trauma. And, and the fact of the matter is trauma just doesn't work like that. No. I can tell you personally you know? that trauma imprints and does not go away. <laughs> exactly. And nor is it supposed to. Yeah. I mean, let's just let's just stop and take a look at this for a second. From a common sense point of view, why are traumatic memories the strongest or can be among the strongest that we experience and why do they have such permanency? Well, maybe because our brain evolved to help us survive and continue living. And if you survive a trauma, you need to remember it so you learn how to survive it again, right? Yeah, and I think that's why one of the biggest symptoms you see in survivors with PTSD or with CPTSD is uh, avoidant behaviors, wanting to avoid anything that makes them feel that way. You know, I... I don't even like to drive past areas where exactly. uh, where these congregations used to be. It's very upsetting for me, physically upsetting. I feel physical pain in my body driving past where these places used to be. I, I, um, I don't doubt that. Yeah, I don't doubt that. And I and yeah. I, I empathize, man. I really do. I get it. I feel similar even to this day. If I'm in Los Angeles, and mm. I have to go by Big Blue, I get butterflies. I'm yeah, not, I'm not all it. <laughs> over it, you know what I mean? I don't want to yeah. have, you know, hardcore confrontations with people I used to be call friends. I don't, you know, yeah. why would I want that, you know? It's it's very difficult. Um, but the whole concept of trauma is something that we are still working over, still defining, still working out, you know? Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I'm just trying to tell the audience at large here that, that this stuff is not, there, anybody who's telling you, anyone, of any denomination, any group, any any license, if they're telling you they got cures or they got like solutions to the problem of, of sexual dysfunction or questions or mystery or whatever, they're wrong. They don't. You Anyone know? who is like Ed Smith promising you a life free from any temptation or any emotional pain is absolutely selling you snake oil. There is no such thing. Exactly. Exactly. Because basically what he's trying to say is we're going to make you not human anymore. 
Yeah, I, I've actually heard that specific criticism of theophostic prayer ministry that essentially he is what he is treating is the human condition. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, exactly. and he has himself openly said that he thinks all people would benefit from his therapy. So there's, <laughs> there's even evidence that he kind of knows that he's just treating the human condition. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. yeah, it's, it's very, um, I don't know if I can swear on your show, but you, it's messed up. <laughs> no, it's fucked up. That's exactly what it is. And feel, feel free to swear. Okay. And, yeah. Cause it's, cause it's, you know, when I read through this, uh, here before we were, before you were describing it and then after you described it, it it's crystal clear. This is just mashed up psychotherapy and religious ideas oh, yeah. thrown together. And if it didn't work, it's cause you know, the devil's in you. I mean, there's just, there yeah. is just no, literally. Literally, Ed Smith will say, if his therapy is not effective on you, it is because a demon is in your body preventing his therapy from being effective. There you go. Right? I Very have seen scientific. him say it on tape. <laughs> there you go. Um. Well, Ed, you go show me some demons and and uh, and, and we'll we'll talk more. Yeah. Oh my wow, gosh. man. Wow. Okay. Um, well, I have uh, – let's go ahead and wrap up now because okay. I think we've covered – some pretty important stuff here. I mean, one in terms of the um, messianics and two in terms of the gay conversion therapy, which I, you know, I've been wanting to look at or talk to somebody who has experienced that for quite some time. And you accidentally came across my radar here. So I want to thank you for taking this time, for doing the work you're doing, for putting the work out there publicly that you're doing. And for being brave enough to to step up and put your face out there and say, hey, this happened to me and it wasn't cool and I want to talk about it. Thank you. Um, I really import, I really appreciate the opportunity to do that because um, it upsets me, it angers me that when you search Theophostic Prayer Ministry that most of what comes up is Ed Smith's own material. And it angers me that when you search for the Messianic movement and to try to find out what it is and what it's about that most of almost all of what comes up is their own material. And I think that there is so little people who have actually experienced life in the Messianic movement who are willing to speak out about it because many people feel embarrassed and ashamed. I feel embarrassed and ashamed actually of the things that happened to me, of the person that I used to be. And especially I think many Messianics end up in mainstream Judaism and are then very, very embarrassed to talk about <laughs> their upbringing. Um, and I have decided that I have nothing to be ashamed of and only the people who have done these things to me need to be ashamed. And so I'm not afraid to put my face behind it. Excellent. Excellent. Well, there's a sacrifice there. You know, you have lost people as a result mm. and that really sucks. And, um, you know, you're, you might have a problem with the, with the cult terminology and I get it. And I'm not going to, like, force it down your throat, but I will certainly say that what you have described is very cultic behavior. Mm, we haven't even talked about my my <laughs> banishment. I know. But you have uh, alluded to it enough that I get that, I get that there is shunning going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I lost almost all my friends and, and family, not family members, but, like, community, people who I grew up living in their home with, um, I can't speak to anymore. Yeah. Um, and what, what ended up happening just briefly yeah. is I started to come out to some of my closest friends and tell them that I identified as bisexual, but that I was still figuring things out. I didn't know if I should be celibate or what, but that I thought that this was who I was. And I 
there was supposed to be a meeting of the leadership at our congregation to which I was supposed to go because I used to teach dance through this congregation um, as part of a ministry. And I didn't make it because I was sick. And I ended up getting a really, you know, like a 27 part text message from my conversion therapist's wife bitching me out for not showing up. And it turned out to have been an intervention for me. And um, basically he had divulged to her and to all of the elders of our congregation and to their wives, all of my trauma that I had encountered in therapy, but I had told him about in therapy privately and in confidence, he told everyone about, you know, everything I told you, my history of self-harm, eating disorders, suicide attempts, uh, my rapes and childhood sex abuse, my abusive family. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, everyone, all the people of power in my community, let's say, the elders and their wives knew. Um, all my closest friends knew because my closest friends had all gone to them and basically reported on me and said, you know, Matan came to us. I, I wasn't going by Matan at that time, but they said, you know, he came to us and came out and we're worried about him and his salvation. And, and they set up another intervention for me, which I went to with like 16 people and it just turned into a shouting match. And, um, uh, I'm not welcome anymore. Uh, my closest friends hugged me goodbye and walked away and have never said anything to me since. Uh, yeah, quite wow. crazy. My sister also, I had an older sister who at 17, my mom kicked her out of our house because she wanted to go to a Unitarian Universalist church. My own mom was shunned by her closest friends because she started dating someone after she was divorced and that conflicts with messianic uh, religious beliefs. They're not afraid to, uh, to shun. <laughs> no, I get that. I, I would say it. it's, not, it's not like um, Jehovah's Witnesses or some other organizations where it's you know baked in and you must shun, right. um, but it's very, culturally it's part of their culture to not associate with unbelievers and definitely not to associate with people who have left the religion or are critical of them. Right. Exactly. And you fit both those bills. What yeah. a mess. Yeah. What a mess. What a, sh what a, what a shame really. Yeah. You know, I always just feel so sad now that people feel that their beliefs are so important that family are disregarded, you know? Mm. Okay, man. Well, I'm sorry that to happened to you. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. I hope it doesn't happen to anyone else. Well, that's the whole point. Yeah. You know, that's kind of our point here is, you know, it doesn't have to. And, yeah. you know, there are a lot of things in our lives that are not choices that we have to make. Mm -hmm. We just have stuff thrust on us. Where we're born, what language we're going to speak, how we're going to get educated, what the color of our skin is going to be, what our sexual orientation is going to be. These are things that, generally speaking, are out of our control. Almost entirely from day one. But your family, getting to communicate with your family, that's a choice, you know? And mm. it's really sad when people decide that family, friends, et cetera, are, are not as important as the Sky Daddy. <laughs> All right, man. Well, again, thank you for taking the time and for being on my show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, I'm going to link your blog. Is there any other way that people should reach out or try to contact you if they want to talk to you further after watching our show? Mm, that is an excellent question. <laughs> uh, I would love to 
take people's uh, comments, but I don't really have a public place or questions, but I don't really have a public place to set up to interface with people aside from my Tumblr blog. And I know that it's 2020 and Tumblr is a dead platform. Right. Um, you can pry it from my cold dead hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. We're going to post this in a week or two, and mm. when I do, I'll let you know, and you can respond to people's comments on YouTube, at least, and sure. sensiblyspeaking.com if people leave comments there. Um, and if you come up with some other way people want to reach you or whatever, just let me know. I can leave that in the comment section yeah. as well, or I can message it to you and you can add it to the description. You got it. All right. All right, folks. This was our show this week. I hope you found this, um, you know, interesting, educational, perhaps entertaining in some fashion, but hopefully I think educational on this one. This was an important one, and there were some important things we covered here. Now, I can give you a lot of very, you know, scientific sounding words for a lot of the phenomena, but the bottom line is it's abuse. And and we recognize it as such. And I and I and I'm talking about this stuff because I want you guys to one know about it, be aware of it, and two be aware of the signs of it, because you're not necessarily going to see all of this in the people around you, but you might see red flags of it. And if you do, it's okay to step up and ask and take some action and and find out if people need some help or just somebody to listen to. It can help. It can matter. A, a lot, especially if you get them at the right time, at the right place, and you never know when that's going to be or when those opportunities are going to present themselves. So just thought I'd throw that out there as a little bit of what can I do, you know? Uh, sometimes we hear this stuff and we just shake our heads and go, oh my God, there's just nothing that can be done about this, but it's not true. It's not true at all. Um, the right person stepping in at the right place at the right time can change a person's life forever in a positive way. So that could be you. And that being said, I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.